Well, good morning, everybody. So how many of you have ever run out of gas? You're out driving along and out of gas completely, all right? According to the AAA, more than a half a million people in our land run out of gas every single year, half a million. So besides flat tires and dead batteries, running out of gas ranks right up there as one of the top reasons that they get calls for roadside service. This past fall, I was at a soccer game in North Tacoma, and I was under an umbrella on the sideline at uh, Annie Wright School, and uh, my cell phone started ringing, buzzing on my uh, hip, and so I, I noticed it was our 35-year-old daughter, Janae, and I picked it up, or answered the call, and uh, she wanted to know, Dad, am I still on the family AAA plan? <laughs> you guessed it. So... She was driving across the 520 bridge in Seattle, across Lake Washington, and ran out of gas. So in her defense, her truck had a faulty gas gauge. Anyway, it was a very narrow spot of the bridge, so she just pulled over as tight as she could to the barrier and climbed out the passenger door and over the concrete barrier, and she's calling from the safety of the bike lane there. And, uh, so long story short, when she moved to Seattle last year, she decided not to stay on our family AAA plan. And uh, so I called AAA just to make sure. They said, no, she's not on your plan, but she's just been off for a few months. If you give me your credit card right now, I'll put her back on and we'll take care of her. And they, and they did, much to my relief. <laughs> but why is it with all the advantages of technology today that drivers still run out of gas just about as often as ever? We'll come back to that question at the end of the sermon today. And in our text, it's not gasoline that's lacking, but olive oil. The fuel burned in the lamps of Jesus' day. And I believe that we're going to discover today that the five foolish bridesmaids didn't actually run out of oil. They never had it. So I'm going to begin by reading our text. It's Matthew 25. If you want to join me, please do. Matthew 25 in the Bible on the chair in front of you. It's page 830. Matthew 25, beginning at verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went, went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to, the, to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Let's pray. Please bow with me. Father God, your son came for a bride. 
And he bought her with his own precious blood. And now he has gone to prepare a place for her, but he's coming again for his betrothed, for his beloved, in order to marry her and to take her into his chambers where we will learn what true pleasure is. And Father, I pray that you will awaken those who only have lamps today but no oil. Awaken them. Those who have the form of religion but no power, no relationship with the Son of God. Father, please awaken us today to your plans and your heart for all of us. Grant that there would be readiness and expectancy, faith and true life. Forbid that anyone here would be playing games with you. And we pray that no one would hear these words and be found outside the door of heaven after it is shut. Oh God, I pray that we would be earnest about preparing for the day when the trumpet will sound and the archangel will call out, He is here. And Father, I pray you'd help me now to be faithful to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So before we get into the parable, we'd be well to remind ourselves of the context that Jesus spoke these words in. Jesus and his disciples are up on the Mount of Olives, which is a range of hills just outside the old city of Jerusalem toward the east. And it's very near the end of our Lord's ministry. And he's preparing his disciples for his coming death and his return to heaven. And as they're on the hillside looking down over the old city and over the temple in particular, Jesus tells them this is all going to be destroyed. And the disciples, of course, want to know when. And what will be the signs of your coming back, your coming again? And in response to those questions, Jesus spoke to them and described for them the last days. He made it clear that there would be wars and rumors of wars leading up to his return, and there would be famine and earthquakes. And Jesus also made it clear that the end would not come immediately, but only after considerable time and troubles. And because he spoke these words from the Mount of Olives, we call this discourse, this teaching of his disciples, we call it the Olivet Discourse. It's Matthew 24 and 25. We also can find it in Mark 13 and Luke 21. And in Matthew 24, Jesus told his disciples, these are the signs of my second coming. And then he built upon that with three parables. He told three parables, and these parables, though slightly different, have a similar emphasis. Three things they have in common particularly, and I want to highlight them for you as we begin. First, the return of Christ will be sudden and unexpected. Sudden and unexpected. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, No one knows the day or the hour, so be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. All three parables in Matthew 25 stress that. Jesus clearly taught that his return would be sudden and unexpected, like a thief in the night, like the unexpected crash of lightning and thunder. One of our grandchildren's favorite games when they come over to our house is hide and seek. And they especially like it when I am it and they get to go hide. 
And you know how it works. You've done this. Okay, you start counting, and when you get down to zero, you shout out, Ready or not, here I come. Often to the squeal of delight of some of the younger grandkids because they just can't contain their excitement. And of course, that right away gives away where they're at. (laughs) And in a sense, that's the message of this parable. Ready or not, here I come. Because the return of Christ will be sudden and unexpected. And many will not be ready. Second, the return of Christ will divide people into two groups. The return of Jesus will result in an unalterable division between these two groups of people. In one parable, we see them as the sheep and the goats. In another, we see them as those who invest their talents wisely and those who don't. And here, it's the wise and the foolish bridesmaids. But note that there's two distinct groups of people that we need to see. So this is a very arresting parable that we're looking at. It's about the similarities between genuine and counterfeit Christians. The parable shows us that even though they look very much alike, their destinies are drastically different. And third, the group that is shut out are very surprised. The lost seem very surprised at their rejection. And all three parables show that. Again, the overall emphasis of this parable is on watchfulness and readiness for the return of Jesus Christ. Jesus often taught the importance of being ready and prepared. We must always hold strongly the sense of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. He he could return today, before we even are done here. He could return tonight. And the question is, are you ready? Here's the second thing now by way of introduction. Let's consider the problem Jesus is addressing. The main principle that we've been using to study and understand parables is the truth that parables were never spoken in a vacuum. Each one is given in response to some question or some problem, spoken or unspoken. And therefore, to understand each parable, we need to recognize the specific problem or question from the context. And I believe the question here is, who will enter the kingdom of heaven? Who will get into heaven? The big question for the disciples who heard Jesus talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the judgment, and how everyone would be split into these two groups of people, is, who gets into heaven? How can I make sure I'm into heaven? The last thing Jesus spoke of in chapter 24 was about that judgment and he compared it to the days of Noah where some were delivered and some perished in the flood. And so the question again would be who will get in to heaven? And the answer we're going to see is only those who are truly prepared. Only those who are truly prepared. And the parable of the bridesmaids defines what it means to be ready to be prepared. So that's the question we're looking at today. What does the bridegroom have to say to you and to me who are living in between his first coming and his second coming, his return for us? And so I invite you to look with me now at Matthew 25.1 and the verses that follow to see how Jesus answers that question. Again, in your Bibles, Matthew 25, verse 1, as we begin looking at the parable. 
So summer's a big season for weddings. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have attended at least one wedding this summer? Many of you have. We have. We've had a couple of weddings that we've been to, one of them our own daughters. And weddings are always special and memorable, but summer weddings have a unique beauty all their own. Most people love weddings, one of the happiest times of life, one of the biggest celebrations of all. And so it's fitting that Jesus chose to tell a parable about a wedding, something we can relate to, something we enjoy. But this is a wedding where things go seriously wrong. And we're going to walk through the parable a verse at a time now as Jesus begins by telling us about the ten bridesmaids in verse 1, the ten bridesmaids. Now, most translations use the word virgins, as the ESV did that I just read for you, because that's what that word literally means in the Greek. But the emphasis here really isn't on their virginity, rather on their role in the wedding, on their relationship with the bride. And so I'm going to use the word bridesmaids because I think it makes more sense in our culture today. And in fact, uh, some translations do translate it, render it that way, bridesmaids. Now the parable is based upon the marriage customs of our Lord's day, not our day, his day. And in Jesus' day, you got married in three distinct stages. So here are the three stages of a Jewish wedding. First was the formal engagement. The engagement was almost always arranged by the parents. At this point, the couple, once they were engaged, they were considered legally married. To break off that engagement meant going before the officials and taking legal steps to end the engagement. They were legally married at that point. And then some months later, often a year later or even more, came the wedding ceremony. That's stage two. The wedding ceremony at the bride's home, typically. And it's something, it was something like our modern wedding ceremonies today. And then third was a marriage banquet, typically at the groom's home, a marriage banquet. The marriage banquet or supper or feast took place sometime after the wedding ceremony and usually at night. It might be the same day as the wedding or it might take place a week or so later. And this banquet was often a huge event. It could last up to an entire seven days, a whole week long. So it was elaborate. It could cost a lot of money. Therefore, it was a major social event and everyone in the community wanted to attend it. It was a big deal. Prior to the actual wedding banquet, the groom would send out an invitation to the guests, but the exact time was not given for the feast. And then at the time for the banquet, when it was ready, a second invitation would be sent out announcing that the feast was now ready. You know, Come, y'all. It's time. And when it was time for the banquet, a great crowd would begin to gather at the groom's home, and as that was going on, the groom would take his closest friends and go pick up the bride at her home. And he and his friends and her close friends would make their way in a, this parade back to his home. I remember, it's often night. And this was a big, happy, exuberant parade that was going on with this group of closest friends through the streets of the village on their way back to the groom's home. And what they would do is they would take their lamps and they would light the road and they would make it a big party lit up by these torches, these lamps. 
Often they take the longest route through the village they can, they could, to make it last and to make sure the most people saw it. But there was a problem here. Some of the bridesmaids failed to bring oil. Now sometimes people picture this kind of oil lamp when they read this parable, the kind that you see on the screen here, the little handheld lamp. Uh, But that's not the kind that Jesus is talking about here. That's a different Greek word than the word that Jesus used here. This word is a reference to more of a torch lamp. It's the word used in John 18 for the torches that the soldiers took into the Garden of Gethsemane when they arrested the Lord Jesus Christ. So rather than a usual small oil lamp that you could hold in the palm of your hand, picture something more like this. This is a tiki torch, as you recognize. So picture a long pole with a lamp on top. It could either be a rag tied around the top of the pole that was drenched in oil, or it could be a ceramic uh, dish kind of a thing on top that had a hole in the middle that was set over the pole and filled with oil and had wicks coming out of it. But that's what we're talking about here. That's the background of this parable. Getting ready to parade through the streets on their way to the wedding feast. So the formal ceremony has already taken place. The groom is about ready to take his bride back to his home, to claim her and take her to his house. But he's delayed. And the bridesmaids fall asleep. At midnight, someone shouts the good news, Behold, the bridegroom is here. He's coming. And so the bridesmaids wake up and they begin preparing their lamps. Maybe they've gone out while they slept or maybe they just had to refill them so they would be ready for the journey over to his house. But five of the virgins had brought flasks of oil and five did not. So they couldn't relight their lamps or keep them going. So let's walk through the parable now, one verse at a time, beginning with verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps, their torches, and went to meet the bridegroom. Three things I want to point out at this point. First, Jesus talks in terms of the kingdom of heaven and a bridegroom. Jesus came the first time to get engaged. And he's coming a second time to be married. Second thing to observe here is this. This is a parable about this time period between his first coming and his second coming. And the third thing to observe is the bridesmaids represent professing Christians. Specifically, they represent professing Jews during the tribulation, most likely because that's the context. But by application, this applies to all of God's children who are awaiting his return awaiting the return of the Lord. Let's pick it back up in verse 2 now. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. Now some have asked, why are there five wise and five foolish? I don't think there's necessarily anything significant about a 50-50 split here. I think those numbers are incidental. I don't think it indicates the church is half foolish, half wise. 
I believe the point that we need to notice is how some of them were foolish. All ten of them had been given a job to do. Okay, they'd been given a responsibility and their job was to be ready when the time came. And oil was necessary to fulfill their responsibility. The only possible way for a lamp to work is to have oil to light on fire. If you don't have oil, if they didn't have oil, they neglected their job. What good is a lamp in that culture, especially without oil, right? It's like a light bulb with no electricity. It's useless. But they paid no attention to the need for oil. They were foolish, Jesus says. Their foolishness was to think that mere religious form was sufficient. Their foolishness was to think that they could rely on someone else to get the job done for them. That they could borrow what they needed at the last minute. Sometimes we hear people talk about salvation in those terms. They say something like, well, no thanks, I'm not quite ready for that. I'm not ready to ask Jesus to be my Savior quite yet. I'm just going to wait. That is so dangerous. Very dangerous. Let's pick it up in verse 5 now. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. A couple of things to notice about this verse. Jesus tells us ahead of time there's going to be a delay between his first and second coming. And that's been a stumbling block to people for the last 2,000 years. Yeah, right, Jesus said he's coming back, but where is he? Doesn't sound like he's coming back to me, doesn't I don't see him. Remember how Peter dealt with this in his second letter. Second Peter chapter 3 is where I want to read a few verses for you. Second Peter 3.3, 3. I want to remind you that in the last days scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. So two days or so have passed since our Lord left, right? Verse 9 continues, The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to perish, but wants everyone to come to repentance. Again, Jesus told us in advance that there would be a delay. He said in verse 5, the bridegroom was delayed. The second thing to notice is this. All ten bridesmaids fell asleep. Not just the foolish, all ten of them. Which means that sleeping in this parable is not negative. Sometimes we read about being asleep in the Bible and in that context it's a negative thing. Here it is not. The five weren't foolish because they fell asleep. All ten fell asleep. And that brings us now to verse 6 and to the midnight call. The midnight call. And we read this. But at midnight there was a cry... Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And as I read that, I can't help, think, help but think of Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For those of us alive 
in the church age, when Jesus comes back to rapture his church, it will happen like this. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a cry, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Friends, this is going to happen someday. It's really going to happen. Jesus is going to come back for us on that day. Are you ready? Do you have oil? Or do you just have an empty form of religion? Oil, the Holy Spirit, or genuine faith? Or are you just carrying an empty lamp around? Well, I go to church. I, I read my Bible sometimes. I believe there's a God. I pray to him sometimes. But inside, nothing as far as affection for Christ, for the bridegroom. Nothing as far as love for the Savior. He's talking about an intense expectancy that he's coming back for us. And it's going to be better than anything we have ever experienced here in this life. It's going to be better than anything we've known. An intense expectancy. Verse 7 continues. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will be not enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. The cry goes out. The bridegroom is coming, they, they trimmed, they, or they prepared their lamps to light or relight them, and the five foolish gals say, give us some of your oil, please, and the five wise gals say, no way. And the point of this isn't to, it's not that they were harsh, it was, it's not to teach selfishness. The point of that answer is the impossibility of borrowing faith. The impossibility of borrowing the Holy Spirit from another person. The impossibility of getting to heaven on the shirt tails of someone else. Because that kind of transaction is impossible. You can't do that. You have to come to Jesus on your own. Listen, your parents' faith won't work for you. You can't depend upon the faith of a brother or a sister or a friend to help get you into heaven. Only you can put your own faith in Christ and develop a relationship with him. You cannot depend upon the faith of others to get into heaven. It's not transferable. And so we come to scene number three where the door is shut. The door is shut, and we see that beginning in verse 10. And as I studied this parable, I've been struck by one phrase in this verse, verse 10. And I want you to look for it as I read it. Verse 10 says, And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Very ominous verse. There will be a day when the door is shut and it will be too late for any more to get in. Just like at the flood, God shut the door on the ark 
And it was too late for anyone else to enter the ark and be saved. Jesus says here, and the door was shut. And there is an awful finality about those words. It means the door shut, it's locked, and it would not be opened again. Those who are on the inside are safe, and those who are on the outside will never be able to get in, no matter how hard they try. So listen, friend, there is a door that leads to heaven. And it is the door of God's grace, held open by the bloody cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. For 2,000 years, that door has been open to the entire world, and it is open even today. Over the door are these wonderful words, whosoever will may come in. So anyone, anywhere, can go in that door and find salvation and new life and freedom and forgiveness in Christ. Today the door is open. But Jesus reminds us that the door will not be open forever. Matthew 9:20 or excuse me, Hebrews 9:27 puts it like this. It is appointed unto man to die once and after that to face the judgment. You see there is no second chance beyond death for those who have no time for Jesus here in this life. Once you die, the door is shut forever. Forever, Either you go through the door while you are alive or you will never go through. Either you go through that door before Christ returns and raptures his church or you will not go through that door. Jesus' arms are open wide to you today. He invites you to come in and be saved, but there will come a day when that door will be shut. Let's keep reading out verse 11. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Those are terrifying words. Terrifying words. But Lord, I've been going to church all my life. I'm part of the group. I even pray sometimes and read my Bible sometimes. I've had, a, I've had a lamp all my life. How can I be shut out? And the Lord will say, I do not know you. You never had a relationship with me. You didn't seek forgiveness from me. I don't know you. In other words, you had a form of religion, but you never had a relationship with me as your Savior. You went to church maybe, but it was just an empty form of religion. You have been living with an empty lamp. Beloved, you don't want to hear those words. By the way, this is a familiar theme in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said very similar words in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, I read... His words, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Friends, Jesus isn't trying to scare anyone. He's just trying to make sure that we get this right. He wants to make sure we have genuine faith while there is time. 
And then finally, we see the warning in verse 13. The parable concludes with this warning. In verse 13, Jesus said this, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And that's the story. It's a little slice of life from a wedding that went haywire. The focus of the story is on these ten bridesmaids. Five were foolish, five were wise. Five had oil, five didn't have oil. Five were ready, five weren't ready. Five entered the wedding banquet and five were shut out. And the point of this parable is simple. Be ready. Be ready. Because some people will be prepared and others won't be prepared when Jesus returns to the earth. And the price for failing to be ready is too high. In closing, let me ask an important question. What does it look like to be ready? How do you know if you're ready? Charles Spurgeon once gave six signs of this in a sermon. He said, here's what true faith in Christ looks like. Consider it a little quiz, if you like. Number one, he said, is the conviction of sin. True conversion results in godly sorrow over our sin. Second is repentance from sin. Those who are truly saved turn away from their sin. They repent. Third, he said, is faith in Christ. People who trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ alone. They're saved. They're ready. Fourth is a real change in life. You can see a difference, the before and the after. Before they trusted Christ, they were living like this, and then there was a significant change. Fifth is true prayer. True faith always leads to a daily relationship with Jesus in prayer, in God's word, in fellowship. And sixth, finally, he says, obedience. Obedience to God's commands. And this is the way Spurgeon described it, quote, If the professed declares that he knows the Lord's will but doesn't do it, it's your duty to assure him that he is not saved. So, how did you do on Spurgeon's little quiz, Six Signs of True Conversion? See, to be ready means to be spiritually alive and awake. To be filled with the Holy Spirit and to be living with expectancy of his return, the Lord's return. It means to use all the available means of knowing him and loving him and serving him. Living with expectancy. Now remember, Jesus spoke this parable in the context of Judaism and worship at the temple. The Pharisees in his day emphasized an outward observance of religious rituals rather than inward relationship with God. But that same kind of religious ritual, that formalism, is possible, very possible for any of us today. And it it is especially prevalent in some churches today. And one of those churches that I'm especially concerned about is the Mormon church. Many of us have friends, we know Mormons personally, or even have relatives in the Mormon church. And for that reason, as a church, we've invited a group of ex-Mormons to come in a couple of weeks and to share their extraordinary stories with us. 
Listen, they are not Mormon bashers. That's not what this is about. They love Mormons. And they're going to share their love for those that they once lived among. At this time, to give you a little feel for what we've invited you to partake in with them and what, who they are, we want to show you a brief video that uh, introduces them to us. So let's watch that at this time. I grew up in Utah and, um, and just a very strong Mormon family um, and everything I knew was uh, this religion. And so I really had no reason to doubt it and I had no uh, reason to seek a life outside of it. I grew up in a very strong and faithful Mormon home. Uh, my parents taught me and my religion taught me from the time that I was a young child that I, I had to earn my way into God's good graces. You know, I was never taught that his love and that his forgiveness were given to me freely, but that I had to earn them and work for them, you know, through my faithfulness to this religious institution. I wanted the salvational assurance, um, and I was trying to gain that through the works of my religion, through these repeated ordinances and all these things I was doing. I was hoping I could earn God's forgiveness and make peace with God. And I was exalting myself in this religion, and I was trying to justify myself to God, just like it says in Galatians, that uh, we know a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So God had to break me. And I opened up the New Testament and I started to read. And I had no idea what God was going to do in my life. I thought that I had everything that I would ever need in and through what I had been offered through my religious institution. I had no idea that God could offer me something so much greater. And as I began to approach the New Testament as a child, um, he started to unveil his grace to me and show me the things that I had been missing. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Through the blood that he shed, that my sins could be washed away, that he could pay the price, not just part of it as I always believed in Mormonism, but that he could pay the full price for my sins that he could wipe away the debt that I owe to God, that he could satisfy the demands of God's law that I could never uphold myself. The Mormon church is just one church that is oriented toward works and formalism. There are many. But I'm very excited about this event because the Mormon church is so big in our area. And you're going to hear how Micah Wilder and his family met Christ while Micah was on this two-year Mormon mission in the Orlando area. And he began to read his Bible, his New Testament, and realized that the Jesus he grew up hearing about it was not at all the Jesus that the Bible speaks about. And you can just imagine Micah's family, his, they were living in Utah because his mother taught at Brigham Young University and his father was part of the leadership of the Mormon church. So uh, I want you to hear from his own mouth in, in two weeks uh, how that all worked itself out. But it's a fantastic story. It's going to be encouraging and heartwarming, and it's Friday night, September 6th. Please mark your calendar and bring a friend. You don't want to miss it.
Let's talk about some next steps that relate to each one of us. Because we're living in this season between the invitation to the wedding and the coming of the groom for his bride. Jesus came the first time to pay the price for our sin and to betroth himself to us. But next time he comes, he's going to receive us to himself as the bride of Christ. The only way to take part in the wedding of the Lamb is through genuine faith in Jesus Christ alone. Not in our works, not in our deeds, but faith in Christ and his work. God does not want our outward obedience or ritual. He wants a heart of love and devotion to him. And in fact, the only way anyone will enter the kingdom of heaven is through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's what these next steps are about today. Number one is this. I will examine myself for signs of genuine salvation. Paul put it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. He said, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Today would be a great day to do that, friends. You see, Jesus didn't tell us this parable or talk like this to scare us. He simply wants to make sure we are truly saved while there is time. He wants us to join him in heaven. It's not about adhering to a religion or doing religious stuff. It's about a genuine relationship with Christ. Next step number two is I will take personal responsibility to get ready, to be ready. No one's going to enter the kingdom of heaven or enter the marriage supper of the Lamb by being born into a certain family or by going to church or by having friends who are Christians. You have to have a personal relationship with the Savior. Take responsibility, friend, personally to make sure you are ready for that day. Next step three is I will not put off getting right with God. Why do sometimes people run out of gas? Well, sometimes it's simply because they procrastinate. I think I can wait just a little bit longer. And some people procrastinate about getting right with God. The door is open wide today. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Don't put off making your decision. It is very dangerous to do that. There is no guarantee you will ever have another chance before he returns or before you die. Choose to get right with God today, please. And that's what next step four is. I will receive Christ today. You see, the second coming of Christ is all about the marriage. Here's how we read about it, what is said about it in Revelation chapter 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has, been, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Friend, you have been invited. Do you want to be there? 
You won't be there unless you are part of the bride. That means part of those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. And so in a sense today I'm speaking on behalf of the father of the bride. Please come. There's no reason not to be included except for your own unwillingness to bow your knee and say, yes, I want to be forgiven. Please choose that if you haven't already. Let's pray. Please bow with me. Father, I ask that life would be granted, that oil, true faith, and love, relationship with the living Christ would be granted to all, to everyone in this room who hears these words now and in the future. And I plead with you, Father, that none would leave this room today without a genuine relationship with you through Christ, with their sins forgiven, and with a life being transformed by your Holy Spirit. And so I offer this invitation to you today, friends. If you've never taken that step, or if you're not sure your sins are forgiven, just pray along silently with me in your hearts and say something like this. Father, I want your forgiveness. I understand I can't earn it through religious deeds and acts. So I receive it by faith today. Faith in Jesus' death and resurrection for me. And I thank you for that gift. Thank you for making me part of your bride. And Father, I pray that you would awaken all of our hearts. Give us a readiness and expectancy. May our hearts cry out today, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And I pray you will receive our continuing worship now in this offering, in this closing song. And through our lives as we live them out for you in the coming weeks. We love you and we say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.